Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'd ask that you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We will continue our uh, brief series through the months of, month of June on the passion and suffering of Jesus. We looked a little bit at Gethsemane last week, and I want us to look a little bit more at Gethsemane this week. So Matthew chapter 26, we'll be reading verses 36 through 46 of Matthew 26. And then we're also going to flip forward to Luke chapter 22 and read a few verses there as well. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. But we're going to begin our reading in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. So as you find that, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Turning now to Luke 22, we'll begin our reading at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, One of the books that I've been reading lately is a book by Michael Rosen. I don't know how many of you would be familiar uh, with Michael Rosen's book, but I've probably read this book 100 times in the last nine months. That's not an exaggeration. I've probably actually read it 200 times in the last nine months or so. Uh, The book is called, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. 
and my daughter is particularly fond of this book. And in this book, a family goes on this imaginary bear hunt, and they are repeatedly confronted with these obstacles, uh, tall, wavy grass, a deep, cold river, a big, dark forest. And the standard refrain in the book as they are confronted with these obstacles is, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, we have to go through it. And we know what those obstacles are like in our life, don't we? We know what those decisions are like, where there's no way out of it but to go through it. It's like having to get surgery. There's no way to get better other than having the surgery. It's like simply being stuck in a really bad storm when you're simply trying to get home. And you would adopt any other route to go home if you could avoid the storm, but you can't. You can't go over the storm. You can't go under the storm. You have to go through it in order to reach home. And I imagine that that must be how Jesus feels in Gethsemane. It seems that he would prefer to take any other path than the one he's on to get home. That he would take another route to accomplish his work and to fulfill his calling if he could, but he can't. He has to go through Gethsemane's storm. The suffering servant must drink the cup in order to redeem unworthy sinners. He must follow the path through death and through hell in order for him and in order for us to reach home. Last week, we considered some of the mystery of Gethsemane in terms of what was going on in the agony of Jesus inside his own soul. But this week, I want to, consider to look at, I want to continue to consider Gethsemane, but I want us to look more at what the Scriptures allow us to hear and what the Scriptures allow us to see as Gethsemane is unfolding. And so I want to do that by considering five points with you this morning. The first is Gethsemane's supplicating voice. We get to hear Gethsemane's supplicating voice. Now, my points are alliterated. They all use S words. Um, and I, I recognize that supplication is probably a word that's only used in church these days. If you don't know what supplication is, it's simply a request. We hear the Savior making a request. On this last night before Jesus will die, he enters freely into the Garden of Gethsemane, but he knows full well that he will not be leaving Gethsemane as a free man. He will be bound, and he will be delivered over to Jewish authorities and then Roman authorities and condemned to die on a Roman cross. And these events that lie before him fill him with agony and with tension and stress and anxiety. And what does Jesus do in the midst of this tension and anxiety and agony? Well, he prays. He prays, which leaves us an example of what we're to do in our times of stress and agony and anxiety. I mean, Paul tells us this much, doesn't he? Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And so Jesus in his agony prays. But what is his prayer? What is his supplication? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 39 of chapter 26, my father, if it be possible, let this cup 
pass from me. That's his request. That's his supplication. Let the cup pass from me. But what exactly is Jesus asking for? What does Jesus refer to when he refers to the cup? What is meant by this cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is often used as a symbol of divine wrath. In the Old Testament, it's frequently used as a symbol of divine wrath. For instance, if you look at Isaiah 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Prophet Jeremiah, in a very similar way, writes, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup, of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now these are just two examples of what is commonly set forth in the Old Testament as the cup being symbolic of divine wrath. So what Jesus has in mind here when he refers to the cup could be the entire scope of his sufferings. His his mental emotional, spiritual, and physical sufferings. But what is primarily in view when Jesus refers to the cup seems to be the cup of the Father's wrath. And Jesus is being given this cup not because it belongs to him, but because as the Redeemer, he must drink this cup of wrath and judgment that sinners deserve so that he can deliver them from it. And we hear him asking for this cup to pass from him. And we hear him make this request three times. Three times he makes this request. And there's an important lesson for us here when we hear Jesus praying three times. And the lesson is this. We are very quick to conclude when we're praying that a denied request means that God doesn't hear us or he doesn't care about us. At least that's what I'm quick to conclude. But here, we learn in Gethsemane, when Jesus' request that he makes three times is denied, that denied requests to the son and subsequently to sons and daughters. Are you with me? That denied requests made by the son and subsequently by sons and daughters are so God can continue to work redemption and ultimately bring exaltation. That's really what denied requests are about. They are not because God doesn't hear, and they're not because God doesn't care. In fact, God denies requests as a reflection of his love and his wisdom. Just like parents, you deny certain requests to your children out of love and out of wisdom. I mean, to grant every request that your child would make would be foolish, would it not? And it certainly wouldn't be beneficial, profitable, or healthy for your children to get everything that they ask for. And so it is with your heavenly Father. Gethsemane shows us that denied requests are for redemption. I mean, think about it this way. If God had granted Jesus' request on this occasion, no one would be redeemed. And Jesus would not have been exalted as the Savior of the world. He denies the request to work redemption and bring exaltation. But that's true of us as well. 
when we're denied requests that we make to God, it's because he's working redemption in us. He's working sanctification and holiness. And ultimately, his goal is to exalt us unto glory. And you know, denied requests humble us, don't they? It's humbling to, to make the same request to God over and over and over again and have God deny that and not grant that request. It's humbling. But we also read in Scripture that God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. His purposes in us are to work redemption, sanctification, holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, and to exalt us in glory. And so, it's better for us not to have what we're asking for if God isn't giving it to us. And it's better for us to be on the road that we're on, even if that road is marked by difficulty, even if it's steep and rocky, and rough, and even if that road is leading us through a dark valley, it's better for us to be on that road because God is working for our redemption and He's bringing us to glory. You know, we think that if God were to grant all the requests that we were making, that we'd be much happier and much more comfortable. And that may be true, maybe, but even that could be doubted. But even if we would be more comfortable because God granted all of our requests, we wouldn't necessarily be more holy. And that's the purpose he's working in us, to be holy. Now, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight to encourage us that God is wise to not grant us some requests, right? I mean, we can all look back and think about certain things that we prayed for that God didn't grant that we're very thankful for now. For example, if God had granted my prayers, my requests, when I was graduating from college, Stacy and I would have moved to Fort Wayne. I would have been working at a health agency called PHP. I never would have attended Westminster Presbyterian Church. I never would have started teaching Sunday school class there, which means I never would have taken a staff position there later on, which means it's highly doubtful I ever would have went to seminary, and I certainly wouldn't be right here this morning preaching the word, had God granted my requests coming out of college. But he didn't do that. And I'm grateful that he didn't do that, and I guess on some level I'm hoping you're grateful that he didn't do that as well. But if Jesus can pray three times and not get what he asked for, we cannot conclude, we cannot conclude that denied requests means that God doesn't love us or care about us. In fact, that he denies Jesus here in the garden gives us the clearest evidence that God loves us infinitely to the point where he's committed to saving us and delivering us through his son and through the suffering of his son. But these prayers in Gethsemane really do reflect on some level the desire of Jesus' heart that this cup would pass from him, that he would not have to drink it. And so we find him wrestling in Gethsemane, and the tension is almost breaking him. We read in Luke that he's in agony. And so in the midst of this tension, we see Gethsemane's supplicating voice strengthened by Gethsemane's 
angel. So I want to look at Gethsemane's strengthening angel. Now note the irony here. Uh, Luke talks about this angel coming to strengthen Jesus. I mean, get the picture. The one through whom all things are created is now reduced to being helped by a creature. This is part of Jesus' humiliation, that he needs to be aided and strengthened by a creature, by an angel. But there's even more than this. The appearance of the angel immediately brings more suffering. The appearance of this strengthening angel actually leads to more suffering because it's after this angel appears that we read that Jesus begins to sweat blood in agony. It's after this angel. So how does this angel strengthen Jesus? How are we to understand this kind of strengthening? Well, remember this. In order to suffer and in order to endure suffering, you have to have strength. In order to endure suffering, you have to have strength. The angel is not sent to Jesus so that he can have some kind of reprieve from his passion and his suffering in Gethsemane. No, the the appearance of the angel is so he can endure even more suffering, that he can descend deeper into this agony because he must not fold or cave in in Gethsemane. He must not break before all things are accomplished. And the angel is strengthening to strengthening him to endure this hour in Gethsemane so he can endure the hours that are ahead. Because bear in mind, Gethsemane does not represent the darkest point in Christ's passion. It gets worse from Gethsemane. I mean, think about this. The disciples are sleeping now, but soon they will completely forsake him. Peter himself will outright deny that he knows him. And at this point, heaven is still attentive to his suffering by sending the angel. But later, heaven will be completely closed to him. And Jesus must be completely isolated and forsaken. And he must endure that hour of forsakenness to secure the redemption of his people. So he can't break here in Gethsemane. He can't fold here. One writer says, the coming of that angel represents no interlude, no escape from Jesus' passion. On the contrary, his coming prevents the possibility of any such escape. The angel is strengthening him to suffer. You could say it like this. The angel sees to it that Jesus gains the strength of a lion so that he can die the death of a lamb. Think about it like this. Think about the reason a cup of water is offered to a marathon runner. You don't offer water to a marathon runner who's at the 19th mile and is hitting that wall so that marathon runner can stop and rest and get a reprieve. You give water so that marathon runner can go on, so he can endure, so he or she can finish the race. That's what's happening here with the appearance of this angel. Jesus must go on into deeper suffering. He must go all the way through the storm of death and hell itself. And it's for this that the angel is strengthening him. 
And understanding the angel's role in this way helps us understand Gethsemane's sweating of blood that follows the appearance of this angel. So third, I want us to look at Gethsemane's sweating of blood. Luke is the only one who records the appearance of the angel as well as the sweating of blood. Now, it has been heavily documented that people can actually sweat blood under times of heavy duress, tension, and stress. It's a condition known as hematidrosis. Okay, it's been documented. But listen, we don't need science to verify what the scriptures are telling us here. I mean, even if we didn't have documentation that other people have experienced this, we still believe that this is what Jesus experienced. Furthermore, just because other people might be capable of experiencing hematidrosis, that doesn't tell us the significance of why Jesus is experiencing it here because other people aren't Jesus. Jesus is the Redeemer. So what is the significance of Jesus sweating blood in Gethsemane? Well, here's the lesson of Gethsemane's sweating of blood. We learn here that Jesus offers his blood and subsequently his life as a sacrifice completely voluntarily. No one is forcing the blood from him other than himself. He gives his blood voluntarily because Jesus' life is not something that's taken from him. It's something that's offered by him. It's, it's not ultimately nails or thorns that are drawing the blood and the life out of Jesus. And it's not actually arterial pressure that's simply forcing it out by physiological functioning. He's yielding his life as an atonement for sin voluntarily without a single weapon being raised against him. And this is because Jesus' suffering, Jesus' passion, Jesus' death always remains his deed. It never becomes his fate. It's not Jesus' fate to die. It's his work. It's his deed. It's the atoning work of Jesus. It's the purpose for which he came. And he undertakes that work voluntarily and freely on behalf of sinners, out of love. And in light of that blood being shed, there seems to be this renewed resolve that comes over Jesus in Gethsemane. As he endures Gethsemane's storm, he rises to accomplish the feat of redeeming his people as we read forth about Gethsemane's submitting son. Three times Jesus has express the desires of his heart. Let this cup pass from me. But he does not make that request and ask that God do that at any price. Indeed, if there's no other way to secure the redemption of his people than drinking this cup, then Jesus will submit to that and he will empty that cup. Because there's a greater desire and a higher commitment operating in the heart of Jesus. Higher and greater than his attempt to avoid suffering and avoid drinking this cup. And that's his commitment and his delight in the will of his Father. He's completely committed to the Father's will. His prayer reflects this. Not as I will, 
but as you will. That's ultimately his prayer. Let the cup pass, yes, but not as I will, only as you will. And by the end of this episode in Gethsemane, it seems that Jesus gets his answer that there is no other way. There is no other way except to drink this cup. He must suffer wrath and curse. He must pay the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is death. Disobedience brings death. It's woven into the fabric of the cosmos. That's what God announced at the very beginning in the garden. In the day that you disobey by eating that fruit, you will die. That's the consequences of disobedience. And if we are to escape that sentence of condemnation and death and wrath, then Jesus must take that sin upon himself. He must die a death in our place and he must drink that cup of wrath. There is no other way. And in Gethsemane's garden, we see again the last Adam succeeding where in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam failed. But it's precisely in this where Jesus succeeds. He submits to his Father's will. Adam didn't, but Jesus submits fully to the Father's will no matter what. No matter what. Even if that will entails great suffering and agony. So look at Jesus wrestling to the point that he sweats blood and yet he submits to the Father's will. Now, if Jesus submitted to his Father in drinking this cup so that you and I would not have to drink that cup, on what basis can we refuse ourselves to submit to the Father's will for us? What defense can we offer in refusing to follow God's path for us and yielding our lives up to God's will? What storm can we refuse to pass through for the sake of the kingdom? Are you going to say the will of God's too hard for you? Is the will of God harder for you to submit to than it was for Jesus to submit to? I mean, when was the last time that you agonized in order to submit to God's will for your life? When was the last time you really agonized over that? You know, oftentimes, we're willing to submit to the will of God for us. I've said this before. We're willing to submit to God's will for us as long as it's not hard as long as it doesn't bring pain or suffering, as long as we don't have to deny ourselves anything or it doesn't cause anything. And you know, sometimes, it's how shameful it is. Sometimes, we're willing to submit to God's will as long as it means we don't have to let go of our pain and our hurt and our bitterness toward other people. Don't you know what that's like? God, don't ask me to forgive that person. Don't ask me to let go of my pain. I'll do what you want me to do, but don't, don't take this pain that I nurse away from me and that I can, I can hold over other people. There's all kinds of ways that we resist submitting to God's will. What area of your life today are you refusing to submit to God's will in? Is it in a relationship? Are you in a relationship you shouldn't be in? 
Are you doing things in that relationship that you shouldn't be doing? Is it a pattern of sin in your life that you're refusing to repent of? Refusing to yield yourself to the will of God? I mean, when was the last time being a Christian cost you something? I'm not asking that question to make you feel guilty. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. When was the last time being a Christian cost us something? You know, we, we want a discipleship and we want a faith that's not very costly. But God calls us to yield ourselves to him, our minds, our hearts, our lives, to bend our wills to his will. And he's, he does this not so he can deprive us of joy, but so that he can give us something better. He wants to give us himself. He wants to give us his holiness. He wants to give us life. And so we need to learn to pray like Jesus. In fact, we need to learn to live like Jesus prays. Not as I will, but as you will. That's what it means to be a Christian to have that attitude in your life. Not as I will, but as you will. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To pray thy kingdom come means to pray my kingdom go. And if that's what it means to be a Christian, then we must be miserable failures. Because daily, we follow our own desires and our own will before we... Follow the word and the will of God. So not only must Jesus succeed where the first Adam fails, Jesus must succeed where you fail. But the good news is, Jesus gives his life for failures and screw-ups. And he's made fully aware of this when he goes back and he finds his disciples sleeping. So I want to conclude with this point. Gethsemane's sleeping disciples. When the world's greatest drama is unfolding, a stone's throw away, the disciples are taking a nap. I mean, can you, can you imagine falling asleep during the birth of your child? Can you imagine falling asleep during the vows on your wedding day? This is worse the greatest conflict between darkness and light that the world has ever seen is happening and the disciples are sleeping if they don't even know what's going on. But before we judge the disciples too harshly, we need to ask ourselves, how often are we asleep, unattentive, and unresponsive to the great conflict that's going around us all the time as the kingdom of God clashes against the kingdom of darkness. And we're wrapped up in, the, in, our, in our gadgets and in the latest technology. We're wrapped up in television and movies and music and sports. And we're missing the great conflict. And we forget that we're soldiers in a great war and in a great battle. And we're sleeping at our post. But Jesus doesn't cast off these disloyal soldiers. Instead, he gets up from his prayer, blood streaming down his face. He looks at his disciples, and he knows it's for people 
like this that he has to give his life for. Weak, half-hearted, unreliable failures. He knows this. And when people fail us, we tend to cast them off and reject them pretty quickly. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does. The gospel is good news for sinners, failures, and screw-ups. People like you and people like me. Because Jesus doesn't stop loving his disciples and he doesn't stop loving us. Knowing full well that we have nothing to offer him, that we're not gonna give him anything. Knowing that full well, he gives himself to us and for us that we might have life. That's what love does. That's what love does. And that's the way we're called to love. Without an expectation of return, with great sacrifice and looking straight into the face of the failures of others and loving them in spite of those failures. We all need to stop hoarding our love and measuring it out in ounces to those we think have done enough for us to earn that love. We need to stop doing that. And we need to look square in the face of those around us, our spouses, our children, other people's children, our neighbors. And we need to see clearly their failures and love them through it with grace because that's what Jesus has done for you. And we need to forgive people their failures. When people fail us, We need to forgive them. That's what Jesus does here. We can forgive the unforgivable in others, as C.S. Lewis says, because God has forgiven the unforgivable in us. And so as Gethsemane draws to a close, Jesus is resolute and composed again. At the end of this episode, it's reflected in these words, rise up, let us be going. He's committed to the Father's will. He's committed to us. He's committed to you. But as the storm clouds are breaking now over Gethsemane, they're growing darker in the distance over Golgotha, over Calvary. Because we have to remember that Jesus is not rising from Gethsemane to go into lesser agony. He rises from Gethsemane to go into deeper agony and deeper darkness. And I want to look at that in the weeks ahead. But for now, he emerges to go into that deeper darkness so that we would never have to enter into that, but instead that we might know the light of the Father's countenance upon us in eternal blessing. That's what he wins for us. He doesn't go over it. He doesn't go under it. He goes through Gethsemane's storm and through death and hell itself in order to bring you safely home. That's our hope in the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that we'll never know completely the depths of suffering and agony in hell that you entered into because you've saved us from that. Make our hearts eternally grateful. Increase our gratitude and help us to pray more faithfully and to live out more faithfully, not as we will, but as you will. 
Claim our hearts for yourself, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.